separated from his fellow explorers, General Benjamin Castro found himself on an island in New York Harbor, 800 yards south of Manhattan. The general followed a deformed mutant named Piker to a small chapel. There, he encountered a madman and amateur chemist who called himself the Magistrate. Castro was attacked. He resisted briefly, but his simulacrum's power waned. The general feigned unconsciousness and was dragged from the chapel's sanctuary into an antechamber. There, the magistrate's guards threw him into a hollowed-out pit in the center of the room. In the darkness, General Castro clawed against dirt-encrusted walls. He got a handful of concrete before something pulled him back down. What? Castro called out. His simulacrum eyesight blurred, then focused suddenly. He saw bodies in the pit. Unclothed men and women. Half-human. Half-mutated. My God. Castro stumbled. Help. Us. A young woman with a single eye in the middle of her forehead pleaded. She held up arms scratched and bruised by puncture wounds. Castro steadied the girl. What have they done to you? Her pale blue eyes scanned around her, searching for something. Was it escape? Hope? A man's arms fell across Castro's shoulders. His skin was covered with wiry fur. The magistrate, the man murmured. He and the woman. They drug us. For their experiments. What experiments? Castro turned. What woman? He watched their eyes gaze upwards at the rafters. La Signa Bell. A voice nearby whispered. Castro shifted, turned to follow their eyes. It was then he heard the sound of wings fluttering overhead. Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath Episode 14 Threshold Part 1 Gail was late to the meeting of the lunch lady and her disciples. The group rarely gathered in the same place twice in a row, and it took Harumi a few inquiries to find everyone. She finally arrived in the recessed storage level of the cafeteria as the group filed out behind Maricela Santiago. Harumi caught a glimpse of the lunch lady's face, confident, determined, unafraid. As she followed the group, she watched the expressions on the faces of the young and the old, saw their confusion, fear, contempt. Unsure of where they were going, 
Harumi followed them upstairs and around the spiraling corridors towards the Phoenix Law Division. Everyone behind me. Maricela Santiago spoke without pausing or turning to her throng of followers. Surround the children. It will be all right. At a crosswalk, Harumi stopped. She leaned against the wall, cautiously listening, but not wanting to be associated with the dissidents if they clashed with law enforcement. In the vestibule leading inside the Law Division's headquarters, a uniformed officer encountered the lunch lady and those with her. Colonel, the man said to someone Harumi Gale was unable to see, we have a situation here. The words were barely out of his mouth when an alarm sounded. Stop! Go back to your quarters immediately. No unauthorized personnel beyond this point. You're in violation. Yes, the lunch lady spoke. Violations. We are all in violation. A satisfied grin etched into the corners of her aged mouth. What the hell do you think you're doing? The uniformed officer stood at least six inches taller than Santiago and wore riot gear. What, you can't hear? One gloved hand pointed at the flashing loudspeker while the other inched toward the powered truncheon at his hip. The lunch lady was unmoved. "'We're citizens,' she said. Even at a distance, Harumi could hear her. "'We have a citizen's complaint.' The imposing law enforcement officer pointed at a sign on the transparent entranceway. "'Let's try something else. "'That sign says no unauthorized personnel allowed here. "'Can't you read?' Santiago looked at the crowd behind her then back at the officer. Can't you? Funny. The officer flashed perfect teeth. I want to speak to your colonel. Dana Marsh, the lunch lady insisted. Look, that's not going to happen, the officer replied. Best thing you and your people here can do is just turn around and... Harumi stepped out of the side hallway and walked a few steps closer. She leaned with her back against the wall, prepared to get out of there if she had to. Phoenix Law Division Colonel Dana Marsh walked up behind her subordinate. Lieutenant, stand down. Wait, Colonel. Are you serious? The younger man glared at his superior officer, who wore a form-fitting uniform with shoulder and knee pads that accentuated her firm midsection and broad shoulders. There, the lunch lady spoke, so she could be heard by those in front of and behind her. Was that so difficult? Colonel. You know who they are? What they represent? The officer turned to his commander, an older woman around the same age and height as Maricela Santiago. I know who they are, Colonel Marsh said. Now, she locked eyes with the lunch lady. What can I do for you? As the two women spoke, Harumi Gale made her way between some of the onlookers. She wasn't sure why, but she had a sense that something was wrong or that whatever the lunch lady and the colonel were discussing had to do with her professor, friend, and mentor, John Path. Santiago paced inside the entryway of the law enforcement division, as if she belonged there. She waved the group of followers back, and then turned to Colonel Marsh. "'Are you aware your men conducted an unauthorized raid on a group of innocent squatters?' the young officer interrupted. "'They're squatters from the lower decks, Colonel.' Marsh was not amused." Shut up, Lieutenant. The lunch lady continued. Your guards employ the truncheon and taser in equal measure. To do what, exactly? Protect the citizens of the Phoenix Project? 
Those with me may not be equal in the eyes of the founders of the project or the central processor, but you've made your point, Marsh said, waving her hand. I'm sorry, the lunch lady said, her words spoken almost sarcastically. Do we know each other? As a student of sociology, philosophy, and whatever else counted as human nature in the confines of the Phoenix Project, it was obvious to Harumi that the head of law enforcement and the woman who operated the cafeteria in the common area knew each other. Maybe not well, but their paths had crossed in some way other than in passing or in service. What do you want? the colonel asked directly. As I was saying, the lunch lady continued, your men rousted those in what's come to be known as the squalor. Those people aren't supposed to be down there, Marsha's officer interjected. They're not supposed to be cohabitating with each other. Colonel Marsh, Santiago said, how long do you think the central processor and the shadow council can restrict the natural order of things? Dana Marsh let out a long sigh. That's not up for me to say. I'm just, of course, the lunch lady cut her off. You're just doing your job. You're all just doing your job. Quiet, the young officer lurched forward. I'll... One of the men near the lunch lady moved to protect her, but Santiago stepped in his way. You'll what? she asked. The calm in her voice was replaced by anger. Toss us about? Electrocute these babes? Punch pregnant women in the face for a thrill? What message do you think that sends? When Harumi heard this, her suspicions were confirmed. She thought of Mike Helms, her friend and John Bath's roommate. Only Harumi and John were aware that Mike's girlfriend, Mindy, a housekeeper from the lower decks, was expecting a child. Colonel Marsh turned to the young law enforcement officer. What is she talking about? The lieutenant's face went pale, his lips turned up. Major McGillicuddy wasn't here, he mumbled, so... What have you done? The colonel's aged face was fierce with disgust, humiliation. I had a job to do, colonel. The lieutenant was obviously afraid of his superior. I didn't have time to clear it with you. As I was saying, colonel, Dana, the lunch lady interrupted, you are holding several citizens in your cells without cause. You have a choice to make, colonel. We'll wait. Harumi extricated herself from the crowd. She darted down the hall to the nearest elevator, which she rode down to the upper-class living quarters. If Mike was arrested, she thought, it was possible law enforcement searched the apartment helm shared with John Bath. A day earlier, Harumi received an encoded recording from her mentor, describing his role in a classified exploration of the Earth's surface. John never made secret his feelings about the Shadow Council that made decisions for the citizens of the Phoenix Project. But in his message to her, John revealed his intent to use his prestige to undermine the central processor and to find the hatch to the surface that many in the project insisted was a myth. An experienced cryptographer, expert in game theory and social engineering, it wasn't difficult for Harumi to guess what sequences John Bath might use as the code for entry into his quarters. Harumi skipped the traditional alphanumeric rhythms anyone else would use and focused on the symbolic. She tapped the blue keys on the LED plate. After four tries, the tall but narrow door slid open. To Harumi's surprise, a young man stood in the center of John and Mike's apartment. When he saw her, he turned slowly, but not surprised or concerned. Ah, the man spoke with an unexpectedly deep voice for someone his age, Miss Gale. Harumi stepped inside. 
Who the hell are you, and what are you doing in Dr. Bass's quarters? My name is Gabriel Princip, the handsome man said, almost eagerly. Here, Miss Gale. He depressed a switch on the wall. Motors whirred faintly. The fiberglass breakfast nook Mike and John shared slid out of the wall. Harumi, Gabriel motioned to the table between them. Have a seat. I can explain. Her heart ceased racing. Harumi moved forward reluctantly and took a seat. Danielle Devenu entered the laboratory. There, she found Dr. Donna Chang. Chang, she addressed the project's engineer. Where's Ganaya? Chang walked from the row of chalk and dry erase boards behind the porcelainization coffins in which General Benjamin Castro, Major Leonard McGillicuddy, and Professor John Bath lay. It's quite simple, really. Chang spoke as if in mid-conversation. She barely glanced at Devenu and took her place before the machines and consoles she regularly operated. We can do more than synchronize the information in the green stream. We can upgrade the technology on both sides for seamless capture of information the simulacrum observes. Donna, the project administrator walked up behind the other woman. Chang turned to look at Danielle, a wild-eyed, almost childlike expression on her face. I'm sorry? Where is Ganaya? Danielle asked about the project's chief surgeon a second time. I expect she's taking her downtime, Chang replied. You seem to be in quite a fit. What is it? Devenu, who usually exhibited an almost regal posture unnatural for someone her age, collapsed into one of the metal chairs near Donna's workstation. I'm not sure yet. There was a report of an incident in the law enforcement facility. Chang shrugged, an effort to add levity to whatever situation Devenu was describing. That's an oxymoron, Danielle, Chang pointed out. There's always a disturbance in the law enforcement facility. The project administrator shook her head. Her peroxide-perfect blonde tresses fell about the sides of her face, framing pale cheekbones. That's not what I meant. I think it had something to do with Dr. Bass's roommate. Behind them, the doors to the laboratory opened. Dr. Miro Ganaya entered wearing distressed purple medical scrubs. The olive-skinned physician's hair was usually pulled back tight or over her head in an elegant bun. Today, her long, coal-black hair fell behind her head, stray hairs all about. I'm sorry, the soft-spoken doctor explained. I realize we have a short amount of time before the team must be retracted from the green stream. Meryl, Devenu looked up at the surgeon. Are you all right? Ganaya nodded. The area around her eyes looked especially dark. There was an excess of injured brought to surgery last night. Apparently some dust-up with law enforcement. Donna motioned to Danielle. She said there's been an incident in the law enforcement facility. Devenu nodded. Apparently a... a mob... of dissidents from the lower levels marched into headquarters. They demanded the release of prisoners. Meryl held fingertips to her dark lips. They were rousted in the squalor, she said looking down at the peeling linoleum floor. Some were beaten, others tased. They were taken prisoner. Why? Chang asked. Ganaya shook her head and looked at Devenu. I don't know enough about it, she said truthfully, almost humbly. But until I find out more, I'm locking down the lab. Devenu stood. 
This recent event caused her great concern. It didn't matter who caused the clash between the lower class of citizens in the Phoenix Project and law enforcement. It didn't matter if it was justified. The situation would give credence to the disillusionment of the dissidents and their recruits. In turn, law enforcement would push back. This could only make the groundbreaking, exploratory work of Castro, Cuddy, and Bath more complicated. Devenu stood. Pull General Castro and his team out of the Greenstream. For their safety and yours, keep them here until further notice. Danielle smoothed her uniform and walked past Mural and the conference table at the center of the room. Donna, Ganaya said to the seated engineer, I'll start the countdown to retrieval. Fine, Chang nodded. Danielle stopped before the locked doors of the lab. Don't... She paused, turning slowly and glancing from Mural and Donna to the coffins. Don't tell them anything about this. You can debrief as usual. Ganaya and Chang turned back to their work, preparing the machinery to withdraw the explorers' consciousnesses from their simulacra through the amorphous green stream and back into the porcelainization coffins. Mural, Chang turned to Ganaya, who sluggishly situated herself before the biological consoles. What do you read? Looks like there's something wrong with the general this time. Ganaya's brow furrowed, her eyes squinted in a pained expression. Almost the same readings as when Dr. Bath went dark. Chang observed her display. Since the simulacra don't need to sleep, we must anticipate something happened to him. Here. Donna flipped two switches and moved a fader. I'll amplify the power to his neural pathways. Ganaya nodded in agreement. The major and the doctor are prepared for extraction. Chang stood, hunched over, setting controls on the coffin. Miro looked at Donna. They nodded at each other. Ganaya began the countdown as she had several times before, extracting in four, three, two, one. Ganaya glanced from one screen to another. She saw a unique waveform she hadn't seen before. The wave strengthened, surrounded by blinking red dots. What are you... Wait, you've been testing your theories while they're in the green stream? Chang half nodded. They aren't theories, Meryl. She glanced at the physician, then back down to her console. She typed commands that allowed Ganaya to see one of her displays. I can see it all so clearly, Chang explained. With the right hardware, we can have much greater authority over the transfer of information in the green stream. We can literally store information as they experience it in real time. We can... Ganaya interrupted calmly. I appreciate what you're trying to do, Donna. Really, I do. But... Wishing to avoid an argument, the engineer followed the usual protocol and fired the switch that lifted the lid from the porcelainization coffins. <laughs> Dr. Bath was the first to wake up. Ugh... The orange-haired professor groaned. He lifted his hands to his face to wipe away the gelatinous residue that filled his container and helped conduct energy throughout the chamber. Nearby, Major McGillicuddy leaned forward. I'm never going to get used to that. Extracting General Castro in. Five, four, three, two, one...
Chang groaned in a monotone way she often did. Her counterparts and colleagues were unsure if this sound meant she was confused, intrigued, or concerned. There was a flutter in the extraction module. Ganaya, her eyes tired and squinting, craned her head to look up at a screen magnifying the interior of the general's coffin. Something's wrong. It's the software, Chang replied. It isn't configured for... What's wrong? Cuddy asked as he wrapped a towel around his waist. In a minute, Major, Ganaya raised two fingers. We're losing him, Chang. Can you code? The seated engineer slid from LED consoles to analog machines stacked at her knees. I'm already on it, she said, assuredly, her hands reaching, fingers punching buttons, pulling and replacing a fiber optic cable. Without missing a beat, she stretched from one console to the other, typing computer code with both hands effortlessly. Dr. Bath pulled a robe over his naked body. He hovered over the engineer and rubbed the back of his head where needles had punctured his hairline, skin, and skull. Coding? How are you doing this? What's happening? He leaned sideways so he could watch Chang's eyes dart back and forth from display to display. Ganaya turned to Cuddy and Bath. There was a problem with General Castro's simulacrum. When we tried to withdraw him from the green stream, the onboard software crashed for a moment. For a moment, Cuddy asked. Seems like this keeps happening, Bath scoffed. Shut your mouth, Bath, Chang lashed out, this tone unusual for her. Damn it! Muriel leaned into her diagnostic console. She configured the screen so she could see everything inside the coffin, Castro's biometric readout, and the strength of the green stream. Talk to me, Chang. Chang was silent. Brainwaves are strong, Ganaya said, but his heart... Oh my goodness. Major McGillicuddy rushed forward, cautious not to interfere with what the physician was doing. What is it? Look, Meryl pointed. Donna's coding the software so quickly, writing the program with one hand and the backup with the other. Bath looked at Chang, then back at Cuddy and Meryl. Her eyes are closed, he said. I've never seen anything like it, Ganaya replied. Chang's round chin tilted upward, but her eyes remained closed. Can see virtual fiber optics like tunnels of tangled wool. Donna? Ganaya was concerned. Chang's lips moved quickly, words coming like a flittering pulse of murmurs on top of murmurs. There! There! Chang shouted as bloodshot eyes opened. General Castro groaned inside the coffin. He expelled viscous liquid and matter from his mouth, spitting it over the cold white machinery. Ganaya rushed to the general's side. General! Benjamin, are you... Castro leaned against the side of the chamber. Get me out of this goddamn thing. Cuddy and Muriel helped General Castro out of the coffin and into his wheelchair nearby. Harumi sat at the small table in John and Mike's quarters, across from the man she found there. He was tall and handsome, with deep brown hair, striking features, a clean face, and a cunning smile. She guessed he was her age, or maybe a few years older, in his mid to late twenties. At first, Harumi thought he was another of Dr. Bath's students, but that was impossible, wasn't it? As John's protege, she knew all of her professor's students. She taught many of them. No, the man who introduced himself confidently as Gabriel Princip was something else, and she wasn't sure whether to trust or fear him. How the hell did you get in here? Harumi asked. Gabriel smiled. It wasn't that difficult. I work for the law enforcement division. Harumi withdrew a little, 
No, that's all right, Gabriel said, holding up a hand. I'm not an officer, Harumi. I'm in the Diagnostics and Programming Division. Harumi scoffed. So you're with those who watch everything for the Shadow Council and the Central Processor? Yes. Princip spoke matter-of-factly. Is that why you're here? Harumi said, folding her arms in front of her. Not exactly. Gabriel glanced around. Does your teacher, or the exterminator, keep any coffee? Anything to eat around here? Harumi followed his gaze. His question seemed obvious, an effort to distract her from what he truly sought. So, being in diagnostics and programming gives you the right to break into people's quarters? Yes, Gabriel grinned. But like I said before, it's not what you think. And what exactly do you think it is I'm thinking, Harumi said, turning her head down. Gabriel leaned as much as he could in the static chair fixed in place. Well, you overheard what happened in the squalor. You saw the dissidents march on the law division. Maybe you heard Mike Helms and Melinda Wyndham were part of the group that was... Fine, Harumi raised her hand. You've made your point. You're with law enforcement. You know everything. So why are you here? Gabriel nodded and leaned close to Harumi. Believe it or not, I'm a friend. I'm here to help. I'm here for the same reason you are. Harumi turned slightly, but remained close to Princip. Gabriel nodded as if he understood. It's fine. I wouldn't expect you to believe me. I know Professor Bath has his misgivings about the Phoenix Project. Harumi rolled her eyes. <laughs> you figured that out all by yourself? John's a self-professed anarcho-syndicalist who writes about the failure of the project to realize freedom and self-actualization within the tenets of that philosophy. Clever, Gabriel said, but you know as well as I do that John has committed his philosophy and musings to two notebooks. Princip's words hung in the air between them. Harumi thought about the recording John sent to her in which he laid out his plans. He also described his notebooks, which contained his philosophy and his findings. He wanted Harumi to use them to carry on his work bringing truth to the citizens of the Phoenix Project. That's right, Gabriel continued. He ran a hand through his browned hair, sweeping it across his forehead. Two journals, blue and brown. Harumi fixed her expression, afraid to reveal anything to this man. After a long pause, she finally spoke. John isn't part of the dissident movement. Gabriel Princip nodded. No, Harumi, but you are. Or at least you're on the fringes of the movement. Wait, Harumi protested, raising her hands. That was just a piece of journalism I wrote. I'm not... Cut it out, Gabriel said, his tone serious. As you would counsel your mentor, it's beneath you to lie when confronted with the truth. You don't want John to know of your involvement because he wouldn't approve and would try to protect you just like you're trying to protect him now, just like we're both trying to protect him and his mission to the surface of the earth. John Bath's protege leaned back, eyes wide. She shifted uncomfortably, then stood. You know about that? She took another step backwards. Of course I do, Harumi, Gabriel said, lowering his voice, and I want to help. If those journals get out, it will spell the end of John's career in the Academy and quite probably the demise of his exploration of the surface. Harumi leaned against the wall. Everything she was taught convinced her not to trust this man, and yet, whether it was his seeming honesty or compelling appearance, 
She couldn't resist the urge to know more. Why should I trust you? Gabriel stood so he could face her. Because, Harumi Gale, like you, I am a member of the dissidents. And like John Bath, I want to ensure that if there is a better life out there for the 3,000 people in the Phoenix Project, we find a solution sooner rather than later. Because if we don't, when the general population finds out what the Shadow Council knows, this powder keg will blow. Dr. Ganaya attached monitors and meters to General Castro's aged body to test his vital signs. General, she asked, are you alright? I will be. I'm just disoriented. Go easy, sir, Cuddy said. John Bath turned to Donna Chang. What the hell was that? he asked. What happened? Chang addressed the group gathered around the brushed metal conference table. After my experience in the simulacrum, in the lab under Liberty Island, I was changed. I saw the whole project, the technology, differently. What do you mean? Meryl asked. Well, it, it was no longer construct, Donna replied. Engineering. It is like a living, evolving organism. Bath scoffed. That's impossible. Chang looked down at her hands, then at the machines scattered around the lab. I don't mean that the technology, the coffins, the green stream, the simulacra, are alive. Of course not, Doctor. But the living nanites, the machines and the biomechanical pseudoskins, are adapting to your unique neurology. They are coding information in the simulacrum, acting as electronic glucocorticoids. You mean like hormones? John asked. Ganaya nodded. Cortisol. Adrenaline. Testosterone. Yes, Chang said, and norepinephrine. And they are magnifying neurological and brain activity, multiplying our ability to consume information, sending the data back, here. Cuddy glanced across the room at the engineer. He gestured for her to join the group at the table. You say these nanites are adapting. Are they harming us in the simulacra? As far as I can tell, no. Chang walked from her workstation to the conference table. In fact, they are making our human bodies more proficient. In my case, revealing the inner workings of the technology itself. In your case... Cuddy looked over at John. Bath read an entire library of antique books in less than an hour. Exactly, Donna continued. And if my analysis is correct, once you shrug off the physical and psychological effects of being in the green stream, you will retain that knowledge, page by page, word for word. Castro smiled at Dr. Bath. What did you read, John? The professor sighed deeply. His eyes seemed to scan overhead. Shakespeare, crime novels, Nietzsche, Churchill, most of the New Testament... Castro cut the academic off and addressed Chang. You said the nanites were multiplying, magnifying the information, the impulses we experienced there, and sending it back here? Yes, the engineer replied. And so far, I've been able to capture that data, here in the mainframe. That's why the software fluttered, said Ganaya, concerned. Why it crashed? Chang nodded. An abundance of psychological and biological information... I was unprepared to store the data. 
It overloaded, and... And what? Cuddy interjected. I fixed that, Chang finished. Bath pointed at the engineer's console. So that's what you were doing when you were coding. Yes, Dr. Bath, Donna explained. It just came to me. I saw it revealed to me. Like, whoever originally programmed the technology intended for this to happen, they expected futurists to understand how to make it work. Cuddy ran his hand over his face, felt his mustache. For some reason, he was surprised his face was unshaven. As a simulacrum, the pseudoskin approximated his vision of himself. Gender, muscle and skin tone, even the thickness of his hair and his mustache. The polished skin of the robot body, however, did not grow hair or exfoliate. You think maybe the original creators of the robots meant for them to, I don't know, repopulate the planet with machines instead of people? Cuddy asked. Chang shrugged slightly. I don't know. Bath leaned against the table. This is nuts. What I do know, Chang said, ignoring the academics' persistent denial of their discoveries. What I do know is we were lucky to save the general. Dr. Ganaya moved closer to Castro, but didn't touch the monitors or diagnostics. Easy, general. Whatever happened to you is probably what caused a spike in the green stream. The group was quiet for a long moment, each thinking about their own role in the exploration and how to continue successfully. Finally, John spoke. The simulacrum and pseudoskin are performing these complicated functions and transmit underground. He stood and walked around the table to where Donna Chang sat. How is the signal amplified? Maybe there's an underground power source, Cuddy said. He pointed at Chang. She did say something about fiber optic cable. John nodded, his thoughts turning to the location of the hatch up above them that presumably led out of the subterranean wilderness. Would the density of the earth between the surface and the Phoenix Project have anything to do with the quality of information? So far, Chang replied, that hasn't been an issue. A satellite, Castro said, definitively. What? Ganaya asked. The general turned to Mural, then back to the rest of the group. He looked at them one by one. The information is sent to a satellite and transmitted back to the Phoenix Project. There may even be remote receiving stations all over the planet. That's how it would be accomplished in the last century. Wonderful, Cuddy said, his frustration obvious. Then that means whoever built the robots could have been from anywhere on the planet, any country, any terrorist cell or faction. They could have installed that base in the simulacrum under Liberty Island, lying in wait to take over the free world. You figured that out all by yourself? Bath walked over to where the Major sat. It's much worse than that. Don't start up with me, John. Cuddy's face shot daggers at the Professor. Bath held his hands up, palms out. Look, I'm not trying to be alarmist, but if the simulacrum share data via satellite, the satellite can be hacked by any capable programmer from any country in the world. An electromagnetic pulse near the satellite or its receiving centers and we're dead, Castro said. He looked at Donna. Isn't that right? Chang rubbed the back of her neck. It is true that if the data is transmitted to a receiving station in orbit or on the planet, it could be hacked, it could be intercepted, and the simulacrum could be compromised. Mural stood and paced. A hacker could steal the data, but couldn't control the simulacrum. All biological information is controlled at the source and its focal point, here, through the coffins and the interface. 
You mean those damn needles that go into our heads, Cuddy said. Ganiah nodded. Listen, Cuddy continued, we don't have a lot of time. The lab doors opened nearby. Danielle Devenu entered. Gentlemen, she said to General Castro and his team, welcome back. I trust your latest recon was fruitful? General? We were attacked, Castro explained. We got separated. Cuddy looked over at Devenu. Baths and my robot bodies are in storage on our way into Manhattan. We're heading up to Grand Central Station to... Cuddy's voice trailed off. He was reluctant to detail for the project administrator how their exploration got sidelined in an errand of mercy for grubbers in the catacombs of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. He hoped Bath would keep his mouth shut as well. Castro continued. As I explained, I got separated from Major McGillicuddy and Dr. Bath. In the moments that followed, he gave an overview of his escape from the mutants who attacked the ferry they sailed from Liberty Island into New York Harbor. He told of his nighttime passage along Nut Island and meeting the boy mutant Piker and the delusional magistrate. I was thrown into some kind of hole in the ground, Castro finished. Cuddy pointed at the rest of the group. We're going to find a way to get you out of there, sir. Devenu started to sit, then anxiously stroked a wild strand of blonde hair over an ear. So, who is this magistrate? Castro looked up. As far as I can tell, he's some self-appointed judge experimenting on these people, both mutants and humanoids. I think he's trying to figure out why some were resistant to the virus, or radiation, or whatever caused the mutations. He sounds completely insane, John said. Yes, Ganiya interjected, but it would be useful to know the extent of his research. You can't be serious, Cuddy asked. Miro looked at Cuddy. The safety and livability of the remaining population is a cornerstone of the mission, Major. Cuddy stood between Bath and Ganiya. Wait a minute, this nutbag captures a general, and you're concerned about his research? I say we arm ourselves and force our way onto the island get the general back, and take out any of these monsters that get in our way. That's always your idea, John said, pointing at his temple, then at where General Castro sat in his antique wheelchair. The general is right here. Cuddy raised his index finger. You know what I meant, dumbass. There was an armory on the island, Castro said. John glanced over at Danielle. We can't make saving the mutants a priority when we can actually help the survivors. Donna nodded in agreement. It's all a diversion. We should stay on course. Danielle took an audible breath. She raised her hands, palms down as if to lower the tension in the room. However possible, she instructed, we proceed to Manhattan, gather more information, and report to the council. John approached the administrator. You report to the council, he said. We can't accomplish as much split up, Cuddy added. Ganiah turned to General Castro. Was your simulacrum damaged? The general shook his head. I don't think so. It just powered down. Chang spoke to Castro and Ganiah. If I can have some time, knowing what I know now, I think I can upgrade the technology, engineer a way the team can stay connected to the green stream longer without adverse side effects. What side effects? John asked. Devenu walked to the center of the table. 
I think you're right, she said. We need more time in the green stream. Time to get the general back with the team. Time to continue the exploration as planned. She leaned forward, placing her fingertips on the table. She closed her eyes. In the meantime, she spoke cautiously. There have been other... developments. What developments? Kasher asked. All eyes turned to the project administrator. There was an organized protest in the law enforcement division. What? Cuddy felt the pull of duty. I need to get up there. Dissidents forced the release of several prisoners, Danielle explained. I'm sorry. Cuddy, John, you can't leave here. Either of you. Why? There was a tone of intensity in Bath's voice. Danielle swallowed hard. Some of the prisoners, including your roommate, Mike Helms, and his girlfriend, Melinda, Mindy, John corrected Danielle. Did you know she was pregnant? Devenu looked at Bath, a grim look of pity on her face. What do you mean, was? There were... Danielle hesitated, a hint at tears in her otherwise beautiful blue eyes. There were complications. Bath watched as the project administrator looked over at the chief surgeon. Their shared expression betrayed they knew something, but were reluctant to inform the professor. Damn it! John shouted, the contempt strong in his tone. Get me out of here. Let me go. It was not difficult for Major McGilligatty to restrain Dr. Bath. It was, however, hard for the stronger, more forceful man to hide his empathy, concern. Devenu continued. There was an altercation with the law enforcement officers. Mindy's in a coma. An altercation? John flailed angrily against Cuddy. Mindy and Mike are the gentlest people ever. They'd never hurt anyone. If anything happens to them, he aimed a pointed finger at the law enforcement officer. I blame you. Me? Cuddy let Bath go. I was in New York with you. Your whole crew is a bunch of bullies, John said. Animals. Cuddy was tired of trying to convince the professor of the need for law enforcement or the danger of those who refused to submit to the will of the central processor. Look, John, if they were with the dissidents, then... Shut up, John interrupted. They aren't dissidents. They're just people, like everyone else. You got it? The Major held a hand between him and John. Back off me, Doctor. Doctor. Major. Danielle walked to where John and Cuddy stood at odds with each other. The matter is being referred to the Shadow Council for review, and any necessary action. Oh, how convenient for you and the Shadow Council, John sniped at Devenu. That's not justice. That's absurd, and you know it. You all know it. But you're all cowards. I want to see them. I want to see Mike. Now. Cuddy turned to Devenu. Let him see his friends. He backed away from Bath. Unlock the door. Danielle gazed for a long moment at the lab door, then at the team before her. I have my instructions, she said. You must remain here. Damn your instructions, said John. He's right, Cuddy agreed. Who's going to hold us here, Devenu? You? Castro struggled, pushing himself up from his wheelchair. Though his lower extremities were dulled and he was unable to move his legs, he leaned, bracing himself against the metal table. Let them go, he commanded, eyes piercing, powerful forearms flexing. Without hesitation, Danielle Devenu looked at Major McGillicuddy and Dr. Bath. She nodded at the laboratory door. As she watched them leave, 
Danielle was unsure how she was going to explain this to the Shadow Council. It disturbed her that her first inclination was to lie. Her second was to not give a damn. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production. Based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.